Well, please uh, remain standing and turn with me, if you will, in God's Word uh, to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 26 through 56 this morning, but uh, we're going to start by just reading 26 through 38. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Beloved congregation, this is our God's word to us this morning. Let us give our undivided attention to it. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be called, or he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who has been called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am your servant. I am the servant of the Lord. And let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I think we'll pause at that point. Let's ask God to be with us as we look in his word this morning. Our God, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your ways higher than ours and your thoughts higher than ours. We're here today because we want to know you, we want to know your truth, we want to know your ways. And so we ask that you would teach them to us, that you would guide us in them, and that we would seek after you with all of our hearts and with all of our minds and with all of our strength. Help us to do this even this morning as we draw near to you in your word, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I think it's no secret uh, that the world has an ongoing love affair with strength, uh, power, ability, uh, celebrity, popularity notoriety. Magazine covers are not regularly adorned with the needy, the blemished, the marginal, the weak. Conferences are not headlined by average people. Endorsements are not sought by the unknowns because companies want their products to be identified with those who get things done. Whether that's a successful athlete, a powerful business leader, or 
a political powerhouse, the message is always the same, isn't it? If you want to be successful like this person, use our product. And sadly, as is often the case, the church of Jesus Christ has followed and copied and mirrored the world. We have our own celebrities. And so we attach ourselves to Christian politicians in hope of building the kingdom. We book Christian athletes to speak at our conferences. We have musicians and bands and celebrities. We look for endorsements by the right people. And even local pastors, through the revolution of the internet and things like that, have become national figures. The truth is, the church has its own love affair with power, success, and celebrity. We look for those who we think can make things happen. We seek out those who have recognition, who have appeal. And perhaps where this temptation is the most subtle and also the most devastating is when we have those secret desires in our own hearts to be major influencers for the church. When we want to be known for really having an impact on the world, when we set our gaze on transforming society, or when we want to be powerfully used in evangelism, and we think that being successful to God and to His kingdom will be measurable in things that the church and the world and our friends can see and count and measure. And no matter how much I know that that's the case in my head, no matter how much I know that it's displeasing to God, my heart goes there over and over and over again. Because the the reality is I want to be a great pastor. I want to be sought for counsel and advice. I want to be recognized for being great at what I do. And that's not for God's glory. And it's not just that those impulses are born of sinful and ugly pride. It's that they fundamentally misunderstand the nature of God's kingdom. Not only is God unimpressed by celebrity, he absolutely despises it and abhors it. He's not looking for the strong and the capable to come and save him. He's looking for the weak, the needy, the poor, and the marginalized. Because our God is in the business of making the impossible possible and in doing mighty and wonderful things through the weak and needy vessels. You see, God is is most glorified not in the lives that the world finds amazing, but he's most glorified in the millions and millions of quiet acts of devotion in unknown, nameless lives of selfless surrender. And that message 
is really, that reality is, is really driven home in our passage this morning. Last week we looked at Zechariah, a, a well-educated and respectable leader in Israel, in the church. And yet, when his time to trust the Lord came, he tripped and he stumbled. And against that today, we're going to see the response of, of a young virgin and an old woman and an infant within the womb. And each of these stands in humble awe of God's coming as king and with his kingdom. And each allows us to see a beautiful example of of humble faith. Each reminds us that God does not judge the way we do. He does not see the way we see. And so as we look at this passage, what we're going to see is that Jesus is the eternal king who shares his kingdom with the weak and the humble. And we want to start simply by looking at at the angel Gabriel's second visit, uh, this time to a a young woman named Mary. Uh, Then we're going to follow young Mary as she goes and visits her relative, Elizabeth, whom we met last week. And then finally, Mary, like, like Zechariah last week, sings a song, and that song beautifully summarizes everything we see going on in the passage. And so we're going to spend our final part of this morning just looking at Mary's song, uh, which is so well known. That's, that's our plan this morning. Um, and as our passage opens, uh, Gabriel, the same angel who appeared to Zechariah six months earlier, or on our calendar last week, uh, he appears to a young woman named Mary. This is six months uh, after he appeared to Zechariah. It's in a small, virtually unknown town called Nazareth. Mary is a young woman. She's a virgin. She's engaged to be married to a man named Joseph. And Luke is careful to point out that that he is a descendant of David, which will become or prove to be important later on. And Gabriel says, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. You will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. I'd like to pause there for just a few minutes and think about that greeting. Oh, favored one. The angel is saying, God has chosen you. You found favor in his sight. Out of all the young women in the world, in history, you are chosen and you are honored. And let's be honest. If this story weren't so familiar to us, we would be shocked. A young woman from a small town, not yet married, with no notable accomplishments, she's she's not exactly where we expect the crossroads of history to merge. Somebody famous, somebody of royal blood, somebody, something that, that that's so notable. I guess she is of royal blood, but you know what I mean. Uh, It's not what we expect for a young, unknown maiden. But more than that, it doesn't mean what we think it should mean. When we hear God say, oh, favored one, we think, this is going to get good. Blessings are coming my way. 
the kinds of blessings I want are coming my way. But think about what that announcement meant for her. She would spend her pregnancy in scandal with all assuming that she was unchaste, including her fiancé, who until the angel intervened was ready to put her away. She would spend her life as a parent responsible for raising the hope of the world, her own Lord and God. And then watch all her other children despise him and grow to hate him so much that they want to kill him. And then after all of that, the day would come when she would sit at the foot of the cross, having watched her son be lied about, betrayed, mocked, spit upon, beaten, and finally crucified in the most horrific, shameful, and painful way of murder that the Romans could invent. Did she think that morning back to the angel's greeting and think, favored? Favored in what way? The angel goes on to explain who this child Jesus will be. He will be called the Son of the Most High and will be given the throne of his father David. He he will occupy it forever, possessing a kingdom that will have no end. And that language would have been immediately recognizable to any faithful Jew. It it comes from 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 through 15, because after David's kingdom was established, and after his enemies were subdued, after his own palace was built, he turned his focus into building a temple for God to dwell in. And God sent the prophet Nathan to David to bring the bad news. David, you will not be the one to build my house because you have too much blood on your hands. But God didn't end there. He went on to tell David more. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring, your descendant after you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. A descendant of David, one born in his house, will be given David's throne forever, and God will be a father to him. And so when Mary hears the angel say, he will be great among, uh, and he will be called the son of the Most High, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, And he will reign forever, and his kingdom will have no end. She knew exactly what was being said. The promise made a thousand years before to King David was about to be fulfilled. The new king was coming, and his kingdom would last forever. This is what's being announced. This is is what the people of Israel had been waiting for for a long time. And as they sat enslaved to the Roman Empire, this is what they longed to hear. The Messianic King is coming. And this is the thrust of the angel's message. And it's easy to get caught up in in, uh, the 
the things that surround that message, the, the, the way it was given, to think about the virgin birth, the way this is fulfilled, and, and forget what is being fulfilled. The eternal king and his eternal kingdom are coming in fulfillment of God's thousand-year-old promise to David. And it's coming not in Jerusalem, but in Nazareth. Not through a well-known, powerful, recognizable descendant of David, but this young, unknown virgin. And the only thing Mary can think to say is, how? How will this be since I'm a virgin? Notice she doesn't say, how can this be? The way Zechariah does, she says, how will this be? I'm not doubting that it will happen, but you, you know I'm a virgin, right? She's bewildered. And she sees her virginity as an impediment. But what, but, but what she sees as an impediment God sees as an opportunity. Because her status as a virgin will remove any possibility of people taking credit. It will underscore the reality that this is a work of God, not man. And it will emphasize the reality that he does not need us. We need him. But he uses us. And so the angel goes on to explain how. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and he will overshadow you. Therefore, this child who will be born to you, will be called Holy, the Son of God. And that language of, of, the angel, of the Holy Spirit overshadowing goes back to creation and the Spirit hovering over the waters. The power that was manifested in calling the universe into being out of nothing will now be at work in Mary, opening her womb and granting her conception. And then he says in verse 37, nothing will be impossible with God. Because our God is in the business of making the impossible possible and doing mighty and wonderful things through weak vessels. And Mary's response is so beautiful. It's short and it's sweet, but behold... I am your servant. Let it be done to me according to your word. She doesn't try to understand everything. She doesn't need to. She simply surrenders and trusts the Lord. And in Mary, we see this this beautiful model of faith. There's no celebrity. There's there's no model of the can-do spirit. There's no pretense. Just simple, trusting beautiful faith because for Mary it's, it's not ultimately about her it's, it's about the one she carries in her womb and that beautiful theme is carried on as, as Mary goes on uh, to visit her, her uh, relative Elizabeth uh, so let's pick up reading in verse 39 through 45 In those days, Mary arose and and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. 
And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what the Lord of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Elizabeth's now six months pregnant, and as Mary arrives, John, within her womb, recognizes who's there, and he leaps for joy. And that's striking, considering right, that the rest of chapter one is about John. We looked at that last week and at his arrival, prophesied by Malachi, awaited for 400 years, coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah, no less. The announcement of John's coming closed the Hebrew scriptures. His birth is so important that it's heralded by an angel. Jesus says later on that of all the men born, none is like John, right? This is pretty great. And yet despite all of that, he knows his place. Because when Jesus, yet in the womb, enters the room, John, also still in the womb, leaps with joy. The point of John's response is clear. It's not about him. It's about the child whom Mary carries within her womb. And Elizabeth rounds out this triad of of humble faith. As as Mary enters her house, Elizabeth's response is, why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For Elizabeth, Mary's visit is overwhelming. There's no pretense There's no sense that she deserves privilege or recognition, even though she's the older relative. She's just an old woman in a small town, known by no one but neighbors and family. And yet the Lord has come to her house. And she's overwhelmed. Humility isn't self-loathing. It's simply a recognition of one's rightful place and what is due. Humility, it, it leads to awe and wonder. And humility leads to profound contentment. When you're proud, God can never give enough. No matter what the proud receive, they always expect more. And yet with the humble, everything God gives is more than they expected and they never feel empty. So for Elizabeth, it's it's not about her. It's about her, her Lord in the womb of Mary. 
Now, if we're not careful, we're going to miss the most profound mystery, the greatest act of humility in our passage. Because there's profound humility in Mary, there's profound humility in John, there's profound humility in Elizabeth. But these are all dwarfed by the fact that within the womb of Mary is the God who created the universe. Very God of very God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, without beginning and without end. And he didn't just choose to bless Mary. He didn't just choose to use her. He surrendered himself to her womb. All the power of the universe cloaked itself in weakness and dwelt within the womb of an unknown virgin in a little-known town. How could we ever think that that God would be impressed with our ideas of power and celebrity? How could we ever think that he needs our help, that he needs our rescue? How could we ever think that, that he wants or needs us to make our mark on the world? And then to drive all of this home, Mary sings a song. It's an original piece. She's a singer-songwriter. It's beautiful. We find it in verses 45 through 50, sorry, 46 through 56. So let's read that. Or you can just listen. We read, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty and has done great things for me, and, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in, his, in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped the servant, his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And then we're told, and Mary remained with her, that is Elizabeth, for about three months and then returned to her home. Mary confesses where her joy is found. It's in, it's in God and His goodness. She recognizes that He is her Savior and that, that she is the one in need of rescue, not the other way around. And then, as if to summarize the whole reason for her son's coming into the world, she says, and His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Verse 50. He hasn't come to rescue those who don't need help. He's not pursuing those who leave their marks on the world. He's looking for just one kind of person, those who fear him. Those who see themselves as sinners needing forgiveness, as weak needing rescue. These are the ones he welcomes into his eternal kingdom. These are the ones he counts as his subjects. These are the ones who experience forgiveness 
His kingdom is eternal and it is for the weak. Mary drives us home, verse 51 to 53. He has, he's brought the proud low. He's exalted the humble, she says. Doesn't that beautifully summarize everything we saw this morning in those preceding verses? God uses the, the weak things of this world to shame the powerful, the strong. He uses a barren old woman a virgin girl, and an unborn baby to reveal his glory. He makes the impossible possible. And he does mighty things through weak vessels. If you're sitting here this morning... thinking you don't do much for God's kingdom, that he'd only be pleased with you if if you make your mark. He only touched thousands of souls or millions. You miss it. The mom who pours into her children The friend who puts their arm around somebody in grief. The little note in the mail says, I'm thinking about you and I'm praying for you. They're never going to make a movie. Never put up a plaque. But the Lord sees. Everything we see in our passage is preparing us for the simple message of salvation that's going to be revealed through this book. Salvation gives life to the dead. It makes pure that which was stained and that which was sinful. It replaces curses with with blessing. It makes the impossible possible because nothing is impossible with God, verse 37. And the message of salvation does wonderful things with unlikely subjects. Our God is not told us to put our hope in in being amazing so that he can use us. Our hope is, is that he utters a powerful word over us that makes us a new creation. Our our hope is is in his mercy and his goodness, not ours. Our hope is in in his power and ability and not ours. We have so much to learn from Mary and John and Elizabeth. They had no interest in becoming celebrities. They, They couldn't get out of the way fast enough. They were only interested in Jesus and his glory and not theirs. They weren't used because they had equally, easily recognizable names and faces, but because they didn't. They didn't locate God's favor 
in a comfortable life or prestige among men. Mary would experience heartbreak like no other. John would suffer imprisonment and ultimately murder as a party trick in favor. For them, blessing meant belonging to their God and Savior, and that was enough. But as I said, the greatest humility in our passage isn't demonstrated in John or Elizabeth or Mary. It's demonstrated in Jesus, who who became man, entered a womb, grew up in obscurity, but his, but his humility wasn't just demonstrated in the way he came into this world. His humility was also demonstrated in how he left it. With his mother looking on, he was lifted up on a cross and humiliatingly crucified like a common criminal. And he did this so that, that we might experience his mercy if we fear him. So that, so that he might exalt the humble. He did this so that he might save those who cry out to him in faith. So that we might receive an eternal kingdom that shall have no end. And that death and all his humble suffering is made visible for us in the Lord's Supper. It's a reminder that that God seldom does what we expect, but always does what we need. And more than that, it calls us to lay down our dreams, our aspirations, our fancies of glory, calls us to take up our crosses and to follow Jesus. So I'd like to ask Pastor Brian and the elders uh, to come forward as we prepare to receive uh, God's gift in the Lord's Supper this morning. Please bow with me in prayer. Our gracious Lord and Savior, you, you know us and our longing to be great, to be unique, to be something we think you can use. You know that we despise weakness and we want to be known for our accomplishments. But all we end up doing is competing with you for glory. Forgive us. And teach us to see our weakness as an asset. Teach us to see that you bless those who are needy. Teach us to leap for joy that Jesus has come into the world and that he has an eternal throne and that he has called us his own. Teach us contentment and belonging to him, for that is indeed more than we could ever ask for. That is enough. Amen.